You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Darlene Hunter is a three-time Paralympian and gold medalist for the U.S. women's wheelchair basketball team. At four years old, she would suffer a spinal cord injury as part of a tragic accident, but would discover adaptive sports just a few short years later through paratrack and field. At the University of Arizona, she switched to the sport of wheelchair basketball. In addition to being a player, she has also mentored and coached other athletes by heading the Lady Mavericks wheelchair basketball team in Dallas and hosting an annual women's wheelchair development camp at the University of Texas in Arlington. The impact she has had on the court is huge, but the impact she is making off the court is even bigger. So Darlene, I thought I'd just start today by, uh, I know that maybe some folks know your story, and um, and so I thought we would just start kind of, at, you know, when you were four years old that you had uh, an accident that led to a spinal cord injury. Um, can you talk about um, obviously, at a young age, uh, how did you get introduced to adaptive sports? Yeah, so it was really interesting. I grew up in Michigan, and Michigan in that time actually was advanced for sports. Um, we had, um, I participated in the Muscle Series, which is like a road racing group of adults that like all came together and they had a series, and we would get so many points for doing specific races in Michigan. And like, then we had a banquet at the end of the year, and the person who went to the most races, you know, and did first place or whatever. So it was this like point series. So Michigan was really cool to get active in because we already had a community. They had this big series. And then, you know, I got involved that way. My mom actually met somebody who was a quadriplegic in racing and, um, they were like, you should try racing. It was an independent sport. Um, you know, my parents both worked full-time jobs. So, um, driving me all over the Metroplex wasn't something that was going to happen, um, in my childhood. And, uh, so I ended up racing. I would practice around the neighborhood and just, you know, my mom and would go out and measure how much the neighborhood circle was. And then I just like, okay, you have to do 10 laps to equal this many miles. And so that was what I did. And I had, um, the neighbors knew to watch out for me. They all had like about a time that I would circle back around. And so I started doing, um, road races really early. I, um, the Trenton treadmill in Michigan was the very first one. It was a mile fun run. And I had like pain on my face cause it was like a festival. <laughs> and so like when I was seven, I had this little cute painted face that I was pushing road races and it just kind of, um, you know, was something for me to do and get in the community with disabled people. Um, I was like the one kid among all the adults, but the adults really adopted me and made me feel really included. Um, I had pa uh, Patricia Ford was a great role model to me. It was great to see, you know, there aren't very many women in sports at that time. And so it was great for her to be able to mentor me and I could see her get married and, you know, be a professional. And it was, you know, great growing up with that. I did junior nationals with, um, now it's a move United junior nationals, but, mm -hmm. you know, um, adapted sports USA, and they had changed their name a couple of times before that. So I grew up doing that cycle, um, was really involved in track and, um, road racing growing up. And then, um, when I was, started making national, like junior national teams. I went to Australia in 97 
Um, I had my 16th birthday on the plane and it was the longest birthday ever because of the time zones. Right. So it was super cool. Um, I was like, I'm 16 forever. Um, but that was a fun, I got to go on that trip cause you had to be 16 years of age. And like, I, my birthday was the day we left. Um, and so that was a really cool experience in 99. I had made a world championship team, um, for USA and track. And then I graduated high school in 2000 and went to university of Arizona, um, because of their adapted sports program, mainly because I wanted to get out of the snow and ice. Um, <laughs> which I, you know, Michigan never, was a little too cold for you at the time or <laughs> Michigan. And then like at that point in time, Illinois and Arizona were the only two schools that had a track and road racing program, um, or even were dabbling in that at all. Right. Illinois had that huge history. Arizona had just started. Um, and I just wanted desperately to get out of snow and ice and haven't gone back since. Um, and so when people are asking like, Oh, how did you pick your college? I was like, I literally wanted to get somewhere where it was warm and had sports. Um, so I don't have the greatest story there, but, um, I went to university of Arizona, beautiful campus, had a lot of fun, um, ended up helping to start a women's basketball program. They took a bunch of trackies and put us, um, in basketball and we were awful. Um, but (laughs) I think our first, like our highest point total the first year was 13 points. Um, We were super fast. Like we could out push anybody shooting, not our forte. Um, And so it took a while to figure out that like fast didn't necessarily mean winning in basketball. Um, And so it was a really pivotal and powerful moment in my life because, you know, we started that women's basketball team and it was like really the foundation of like where I am now and just advocating for women's rights. Um, I didn't realize probably until, you know, five years, six years later, um, when I moved to Texas and just like how powerful of a movement, a bunch of women could be together and that we just didn't have as many opportunities. And so, um, luckily I've been able to be that voice and, you know, campaign with people along the way and bring them over. I call it to the dark side. Cause once you like are in the women's sports world and you see, um, you know, the different differences in resources and time playing and stuff, people become very uh, motivated to help. And so I like strategic, I tell people, I strategically pick my people who will help me so that like they get sucked in and then they like, will just like keep the movement going. Um, but yeah, women's, that was like starting the women's basketball team, seeing how hard it was to start it. Um, and not because of like the university, just women in general, right? Like you're taking disabled women and then you're picking those who want to do sports and then you limit them down to wheelchair basketball. And then those who want to travel outside of their home (laughs) um, state, right. To go to a college. And so um, recruiting women is just hard because we have so many different responsibilities and um, goals for ourselves, I think. And so it was, it's a struggle. And if you think just spinal cord injury statistics, right? Like for every one female that's hurt, there's 20, I think it's 29 men is this statistic. So there's 28 more men to pick for any sporting opportunity than there are females. And so, yeah. So, I mean, before we get to any other disability, right? Like just spinal cord injuries and knowing those statistics, you understand why it's so difficult to get so many women in any sport and why we have to work so much harder to keep people there. Well, you, you unpacked a lot right there that I really want to just dive right into. And, and, and the first and foremost is actually taking you back to Michigan a bit. Um, why do you think Michigan had this community? Because, you know, I mean, obviously we're, we're seeing so much progress and growth and development 
in the adaptive sports community, but it's still, you know, and there's still pockets where, where it's just either non-existent or, you know, there's states that just don't have what Michigan even had when you were, when you were participating in, in, in track and field. So why do you think that existed in Michigan at that time? You know, I think that there's people that just really wanted it. Right. And we're just really committed and there's still, you know, the people that I laugh at because in this, now that I'm an adult, a lot of people still see me as a child um, because they know me as a seven, nine, 11 year old girl that was active in sports. Cause there's still the, you know, people who are putting the meats on and people who are doing the administration work and I've grown up and I was like, I'm not, I'm not a little kid anymore, everybody. I'm an adult. Let's, can I play at the adult table? Right. It's like at holidays, you're always asking, can I move to the adult table? Um, and so it took me a while to get there. Um, but I'm there now. Um, but I think like Michigan in general is just more accepting of a state. Um, and we had more resources for the disabled. You know, I live in Texas right now. And when we look at the rankings, like we're ranked like 49th or 50 for services for people with disabilities, it's horrible, right? We like in the educational perspective, not just sports. And I think that Michigan was just ahead of its time and provided a lot of resources. We had like, um, you know, assisted living resources and just wanted the greater good for people with disabilities. And Michigan still is doing really well today. Not, you know, it's, I think Connecticut is, or New Hampshire is number one um, for resources and how quickly you can get them. Um, and so it falls in the middle, but, and then there's just a group of committed people. I think I stayed with the same racing group probably for 10 years. Like mm -hmm. we did um, the crim, you know, the 10 K crim race, like all of those races that people hear about were on the circuit. And it, because it was a circuit, it kept people involved. We knew where people were going to be. Um, and George Linderman was a huge driving force in that he was the one who started that he since passed away, but he was the one that like kept it all together, made the series every year, pick, you know, the races. And then we had the races that really supported us because they knew we were going to show up with like 10 racers. And so they did a good job of making it an inclusive um, environment for us. And so I think when you, when you have that buy-in and that support over time, people get committed and they see how fun it was that, it was a community that didn't only stay within our disabled community. We went out and built relationships with those race directors and they knew we were going to be there. They could expect us. And we were a force that came in numbers every year. Detroit marathon was another one. And that was one of the early marathons that had a wheelchair division. So right. that circuit really drove a lot of participation. And then right in Philippus was a huge, um, I don't know, Tony Philippus, um, was a huge person. Um, he was a double amputee. So he was, he, uh, Tony was amazing. Um, he like worked on, walked on wooden legs forever. Cause he just didn't want to go to the new technology. Cause he got hurt. You know, he was, um, you know, when I was little, he was an elderly gentleman that owned right in Philippus. And because he was a double amputee, he really invested, um, throughout the state agencies that were right in Philippus franchise. Right. And then backed, backed these race series. And so it was a community that you had like companies and people that funded and supported us as well. And it just like created this good environment. And, you know, now you have the games that are still there, you know, and, and it's still a big community. They have two basketball teams and a good population of disabled individuals that keep active. And you mentioned community a couple of times. So that's definitely a theme and a thread. Um, besides community and being part of the community, 
what drew you to track and field? What, what drew you to sport? I mean, obviously you could do a lot of different things as a seven or eight or nine year old as you're getting into it, but what drew you to maybe sport in general, but also specifically wheelchair racing? So my mom's um, thought in life was to keep us overscheduled so we couldn't get in trouble anywhere else. And that was really what my mom did <laughs> is um, she had us, I was in the marching band in high school. Um, I was on track and field. My brother played soccer and bowling. And so she just kept us so active that there was nothing that we can do to get in trouble growing up. Cause she's like, if, you, if I leave you guys to be on your own and think on your own, I'm afraid something bad's going to happen. And so, you know, I grew up snowmobiling for, I had a four wheeler, um, you know, and my parents just made it so that I was like a normal able-bodied kid. Like there was, there was no excuses allowed in my family. Um, you know, I was expected at a very young age to be independent, to dress myself, to, you know, put my own shoes on, go to the bathroom and be just a responsible person for myself at, at respectable ages, right? Like an appropriate milestone ages. Um, and so because of that, my mom just overscheduled me too. And she was like, look, you're going to be as active as possible. You're not using your disability as an excuse for anything. You're going to do what everybody else around you does. And you're going to fight your way to have a seat at the table. And so I think like the fact that, you know, my mom, when I got hurt, she pointed to the wheelchair in the corner and said, that's what you're using for the rest of your life. And that was the end of the discussion. There was no other discussion. Like, um, and so when, when you have a parent that just kind of puts it out there for you, you just don't really question it. Right. And so, um, I think, you know, my mom said when I first got hurt, like she thought I was going to be a dancer and a cheerleader. And I go, mom, I was never going to be that person. Even if I walked, right. Like that was just not me. I've always been kind of a tomboy. My brother is, you know, a mechanical guy. He like was taking, lawnmowers apart at the age of 11 and putting them back together. And it was just that theory my mom had is like, I'm going to keep you as active as possible with things that are going to be productive as adults. And you're just not going to make an excuse for anything. And so we didn't. Um, and so, you know, my brother now has a really good job. He is a, well, for a little bit, he was a pit crew of drag racing and he kind of, he, you know, so he traveled the world and did the pit crew thing. And, um, he now is works for an agency or an organization business that puts brake lines on NASCAR cars and other kind of things like that. So, you know, we both are, we're really successful, but it's because my mom kept us overscheduled and we never could get in trouble. <laughs> That's uh, I think the philosophy of uh, many parents, <laughs> at least if, I, if my kids are busy, then, <laughs> then they're going to, then I know where they are and I know what they're doing. <laughs> yep. And that was my mom's philosophy. And so the other thing that you that that I wanted to unpack was um, the the choice between schools. Obviously, Arizona is warm, and it was part of it. But um, again, you were kind of at this. I mean, at that at that time frame, you mentioned it. There's there there were very few schools that had adaptive sports programs. We're starting to see more and more, which is good. Mm-hmm. Still not there yet, again. But um, and so to to either have a choice between University of Illinois or University of Arizona. I mean, those were the, you know, those were the two school pioneering schools. Um, and so what was it like just maybe even as a, as an athlete going into college to even, you know, some, some folks don't even realize even today that they could pursue a collegiate, uh, you know, a sports uh, activity or even um, occupation. So what was it like, you know, being able to have that opportunity and making that decision? Right. You know, it's awesome that I was 
had enough research and knowledge to know that that opportunity existed. And that was because I was active in sports as a kid. We did the junior nationals thing. You know, you saw other parents and like what people don't understand is sport is a tool. It's not it, it's a tool for so many things. It's a gateway sports. You don't have to be good at it. It's just gives you the pathway of information, especially in the disabled world. Um, it gave uh, growing up, it was the pathway of socialization, self-esteem, self-confidence, but also independence. And, you know, how do I get up an escalator? How do I jump a curb? Like we were challenging each other as kids to like, <laughs> what is the biggest curb you can jump, right? Like things that normal kids would do on bikes. We were doing in wheelchairs. Right. And so, um, you know, and swimming in pools and, and just getting new people involved and saying, look at, this is what everybody else does around you. This is normal behavior, but until you're in that community, you don't think that that's normal. Um, I always tell people to watch Stella young. Um, I'm not your inspiration because I think for able-bodied perspective, it totally flips their perspective of being like disability. Isn't a bad thing. And we constantly in society as a whole think that disability is this big negative thing. And people with disabilities are these frail individuals that are sickly all the time and in the hospital and can't function and always need somebody to take care of us. And independence looks different for people with disabilities. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have to live on my own. And I do. I live on my own. I drive my own car. But there is a population of people that need caregivers and assistance, but doesn't they're still independents. They have the autonomy of making their own decisions, right? And so when we talk about college and we talk about, you know, adapted sports, we have to start at those eight, eight, like the high schools associations and those middle school associations. And I, I'm working with Texas, the UIL, to get more inclusive sports opportunities for people with disabilities because we know the importance and value. Um, Michael Cottingham did a, a research study and it, it the unemployment rate jumps from 18 to 64, like the employment rate jumps from 18% to 64% when people with disabilities participate in sports. So we have this research out there that shows the power and the impact of sports and it's, and it's employment happens because we figure out the pathways to education. We figure out that vocational rehabilitation will pay for us, which people don't know that there's this federally funded program that will pay for your whole education and you don't have to take out student loans, right? And so for me, I was really, I didn't even know about voc rehab. So I paid for my college mm. back then because no one told me about voc rehab, but I was able to participate in sports. So even in our own community, we don't share all of the information and you have to know the right people. So like the first words out of my mouth to any junior kid is like Google voc rehab in your college or in your school where you want to go to college because it will get paid for. There's no reason that we're paying for college when we have this federally funded program. Um, and we know, you know, having employable people with disabilities is an asset not only to us, but as to the people we're working for. And so for colleges, you know, we're doing a lot better. I think University of Michigan just came through with a program this year and CUNY in New York um, is starting a new adapted sports program. They have a men and women's basketball team. And so basketball um, has, because we've been around forever in colleges, <laughs> um, you know, has more opportunities for us to get that scholarship. But we're also seeing that people are starting to push the envelope. You know, you've seen Hunter Wood Woodrow, um, who went to a able-bodied D1 
scholarship, right? And so we have some swimmers like Aaron Popovich is another one for swimming who was able to get on her able-bodied team. And so we have to not, we have to advocate for ourselves and not be afraid to ask other colleges for these opportunities. But team sports are hard to get in college. Um, you know, working with the University of Texas Arlington to add a women's program for, you know, we've had a men's one since I think 1973, you know, and we didn't add this current one until I think we're in our eighth season. And just, we fought for that, um, for, you know, equality on men and women's side for, I would say seven to 10 years, just trying to get a women's program. Because when we look at funding and opportunity and people, you know, how are you going to do it all? Um, when colleges don't necessarily want to spend the money in that way. Um, and so, we have a long way to go, but we're making huge strides. Like Toyota has helped us a lot with their movement of putting some money in and mm -hmm. commercials and really standing behind us as a big business. Um, but colleges is this navigation. That's just a really hard entity to navigate, um, to get team sports for sure. Um, and, you know, there are, uh, I think Pennsylvania has one that does adapted track, but if you don't know about it, if you're not on that Grand Valley State University in Michigan, has a tennis program. Texas Westland down here in Texas gives you a full ride for table tennis. But people don't know about all of those because unless you're in this little secret society is which I call it, if you're part of it, you're in this underground secret society that knows all of this information. But if you don't, it's who you know and who you network with and how far does your information span? Um, and when you were talking about other states, like when we look at like Wyoming and Montana, like we're not even touching any population up there really, um, because it's so spread out and so small and it's really who has the heart to organize, who has the heart to continue. Like when you look at organizations throughout the United States, um, you know, like the Sydney Housers and Diane, um, oh, I just drew a blank on her last name, but in Michigan and, and, um, you know, when we look, these people have been in these agencies for 30 years running them because they have heart. And because you don't make any money at this. So it's who is that new heart that's going to keep these organizations built until we get that foundation across the United States that this is important. Yeah, and you're right. It takes it takes a person or persons uh, and it takes a vision. And, and you have to have both of those uh, pieces of the puzzle to even even to, to try to launch anything. And and I wanted to I wanted to um, kind of talk about that because you mentioned not only not only at UT, but also even at University of Arizona. I mean, obviously that program was just starting when you when you were uh, when you were there. So, what possessed you to switch or say, sure, I I uh, I'm a wheelchair uh, racer, but and and I do track and field, but now I'm going to switch to a new sport. What, what was what was that like? So it's funny because when I was growing up as a little kid, like the, uh, everybody in the area was like, go play basketball. And I, you know, like the basketball team was recruiting me and I was like, no, I hate basketball. I'm never playing basketball. And then like, I have three Paralympics playing basketball, which is just like irony. They all get so mad because they're like, you could have been doing this when you were like 10. And I was like, yeah, I know. Um, but what happened was a, I had back surgery. So at 16, I had rods put in my back um, for scoliosis and track was just really difficult and really hard and really uncomfortable and painful for me is what it turned out to be after my surgery. Um, and so I went from being like the top, one of the top women in the United States in my class 
to like getting lapped in the 5,000 meter and just being in pain because my back no longer bent the way it was supposed to. And so when I got in the basketball chair, a, it was an indoor sport. So I no longer had to do all of the elements of racing in the rain and such. Um, but also it was like teamwork, right? I had, I had done everything individualistic my whole life and as an individual sport. And so it was nice to be a part of a team and just, you know, be able to rely on other people and have that support and friendship. And so once I got into basketball, um, it's also people don't understand. It's like, like, it's like a chess move, right? Like you're always trying to figure out how to move people around the court for your team to score. So it was just really mentally challenging as well. Like I was challenged every play to figure out how to move people so that I could seal or pick somebody to get our player open. And, and to this day, it's still really fun for me because I'm constantly like analyzing and overanalyzing every play. Um, but it was just that. And it was empowering to get a bunch of women together too. I had never been in an environment where it was just women competing and just the force of women and just how fun that was. And so that was what really drove me. And then the sport just came second nature um, after a while, you know, 20, I'm still playing it 21 years later, I guess. <laughs> and and then you also mentioned, of course, the difficulty of starting the women's team at, at UT. Um, how... You know, was there any point that you wanted to give up or, um, or that we, and was it just the bureaucracy? I mean, I could just imagine so many things that just kept delaying and delaying and delaying that. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, the moral of the story is obviously never not to give up because even, you know, so, even though it might take time to start a program or a team or whatever it might be, it, it can and does happen. Yeah. I mean, some of it was administration changes, right? Like, Jim Hayes had this statement, Jim Hayes, um, he was the head coach of the men's wheelchair basketball team. And he was an amazing man. He was like a second father to me. I love him. Um, and he was just like, I'm not doing a women's team if it's not done right. Like his statement was like, if we're going to do a women's team, it's going to be funded right off the bat at a hundred percent of what the men's team is. We're not going to try to build this as a club sport. We're going to not, you know, like his demand to the university was like, if we are going to do it, it has to be all in because the men are all in. And so, you know, being a college that offers scholarships and, and has this funding for our men's program, he, he just wasn't, he was like, I'm not going to do it if it, the women aren't done at the same level. And so, um, it, that was like a, it wasn't a roadblock, but it was like kind of a stumbling of trying to get a new sport. And because while his demands were very valid, right. And what he was saying was exactly what we wanted him to say and request, when you go to an administrator and you say, hey, I need this much money right off the bat for this program that you've never seen before, it doesn't really like bode well with them. They don't, they're not really like, hey, yeah, let me just drop this money for you. Um, and so what it took was like, um, so Jim Hayes passed away and then we had Doug Gardner come in as the director and running the men's team and, and Doug also went to a lot of meetings and was just this like, the squeaky wheel, right? Like he'd be like, okay, we want to start this. Okay. We want to start this. And then when we finally got it started, um, Jason Nelms worked for the first two years without a salary. So he, two to three years actually. So he donated his time coaching, um, to make that work. And mm. so we had, and we finagled some money, some way, I don't even know, Doug did all of that, but like just to get enough and we could share buses with the men's team. And like, so we didn't go all in, um, with Doug's way of starting the program. And it, 
it provided some stumbling blocks. And then we had, you know, like Morgan Wood and Rose Hollerman um, and Abby Duncan who took a chance as like top players and said, you know what, we're going to want, we want to be the pioneers for this program. And Rose Hollerman, you know, she had every scholarship at her fingertips and she wanted to be a part of this and starting something new and having that be her legacy. So at 18 years old, you know, for somebody to stand up and say, I'm willing to like, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know if this program, you know, we're going to try the best that we can to get this going, but for somebody who's willing to step up and say, I'll be your for, I'll be the person that comes. And so we started the program with um, the first year we did it, just trying to get off the, we had five people, um, and Rose was in the second year because the first year really didn't count. Um, and the person, by the time we got to the end of the season, got sick and couldn't even play at nationals. And so um, we had a five on four. Our our team played five on four and they won against a five on four. Um, but it took people who really wanted to believe in the mission and who were willing to sacrifice to make that program work. So it's not, you know, we all want this red carpet rollout treatment. And it's it's not that, you know, it's it's what is people doing behind the scenes. And the fact that, you know, Jason was able to do it for two years with no money, um, you know, and was willing to stick in there with that program to get it off the ground. It says everything because there's not a lot of people that would have done that at a university standpoint. Um, and then Rose and Morgan and Abby just sticking in there and, you know, paving the way and asking for more. And now that program is hundred percent funded, just like the men, they have the same opportunities and you, and you've seen like the national championships that's come out of it mm -hmm. um, because of that. And so, you know, it takes time. And I know like um, Ryan Martin's another great story up in New York that he took, I think he's been working five years and that program finally came through this year. Um, again, not at probably the level he wants it. I don't know his finances, but it just takes a person that's willing to Clemson is another one that they're working on. Um, and it's, what are you willing to start out with and who's willing to join that program and go through those bumps to build it? And just chugging away, chugging away. <laughs> it is. I mean, I think that that's the, that's the motto of like disabled sports in the United States, to be honest. Very, very, very true. And so now, uh, I, Obviously, we just uh, came back from, uh, or you came back from your third Paralympics um, uh, with uh, the, the bronze. And so what's what's next for, for you in terms of, I know you're still involved uh, at UT, uh, you're a professor there too. So, and, uh, and I don't want to leave without talking about your work there because I know that you have an interesting class that you teach there and you partner with Texas Regional Parasports, one of Movie United member organizations. So, um, but what's kind of what's next uh, after uh, as you reflect uh, on coming back from Tokyo and in and, and the future? I haven't made a decision yet. Like everybody keeps asking me this, um, you know, I'm playing really well right now in basketball, I, my body doesn't hurt. It do, it's not broken down yet, which is pretty amazing for as long as I've been in sport to say that my body doesn't hurt. Um, so Paris might be on the horizon. I have to make that, um, decision here shortly. The girls were super fun to play with. We had nine rookies this year and like, um, you know, the youngest team we've ever taken in wheelchair basketball, like the girls were just so young, but they're just such a fun bunch that, you know, wants to put the work in. And so I don't know if I'm ready to give up like being with them and having that like fun time with them and exploring the world. Um, and, and so, you know, Paris might be on the horizon. I have to make a decision here shortly. Um, I sit on the national wheelchair basketball association board of directors, and I'm the athlete rep with the USOPC 
for wheelchair basketball. So like my advocacy will not change. Um, I'm still a for wheelchair basketball, going to advocate um, for whatever we need, but also on the women's side, just to continue to get more women in the sport of for us, the basketball, our pipeline is really small right now. So we have to do some work to get our USA pipeline back up our college pipeline. You know, we need, when you look at statistics of just girls in sports by the age of 14, more than half of them have already stopped. If we look at able-bodied or disabled sports, women just don't really continue on. So we have to figure out that way to keep those women in the sports. Um, our biggest initiative right now, uh, and you could probably see this in any disabled sports is that we're a very white population. Um, you know, we need to do better in in becoming more diverse. Diverse people of other communities and cultures get hurt just at the same level that we do. They just don't have the resources to get where we are, um, and and the opportunities because of where they live and financial and just poverty level and stuff. So, like, we're doing an initiative on the women's side to bring more um, women of color into our sport. So, driving funds that way, um, supporting travel for camps and equipment and whatever we can do to get programs started in these areas that are very diverse, but don't have a basketball team um, and try to get more women out that way. But, you know, you, when you look at our population, you know, we, we focus just on disability so often that we don't break it down to different levels. And, you know, when we look across, we're, we're all very white. And so we have to do a better job of like getting our diverse populations. Cause we know this is such a powerful tool to education and um, employment and just everything in life and being healthier and living longer. And so um, that's my passion. And that's where I'll stick for the next, however many years I'm able to do it. Um, but, you know, I'm not, don't know if I'm ready to give up on Paralympics yet. Um, and that journey, it's like an addiction, you know, you think that you're done and then you're like, ah, oh, maybe there's one more in me. Keep coming um, back. Keep coming back. <laughs> right. Um, I teach at the university of Texas Arlington as a professor in social work and I teach disability and social work. Um, the university has been very open. Um, it's my class. I get to write the class. I get to teach the class. I get to teach students, whatever I want to teach to, you know, within guidelines to an, um, extent, right. to an extent, but about disability. And it's, I get to every semester, I have like a hundred, I get 90 to 120 students. So every semester I get to change what disability looks like for these people who are going out into the world um, and going to be working with us. And so I think that that's like my most rewarding thing. It's not the thing that's the flashiest and that people know about me, um, but it's my most favorite thing to do because I get to have really good conversations with, with kids and I call them kids, 18 year olds, but 27 year olds, 30 years old, you know, like asking them what they think about disability. And then after my, at the end of my class being like, okay, so now what do you think about disability and, and seeing how they change and that they've never thought about life in a different way. And, and they thought it was tragic. And now they want to go and empower their people um, that they see for clients. And some of them have even switched to the disabled. I like make them go into the disabled world. So like, that's very powerful to have an impact on somebody's life outside of sport. You know, like I love being a role model and a mentor to these young kids that are coming up with disabilities, but it's just as important to change society's view of disability and, and know that we, we deserve a voice at the table and that we're intelligent, thoughtful people that are, that are just as much going to change the world as anybody else. And so that's my most rewarding thing, I think. And the thing that I get the most joy out of. And, and, and you, and you do that through sport because sport, as you said, is a, is a tool for that as well, but, but, but being able to impact, hopefully 
hundred and some people who will go into social work and into the community and in cities and communities across the country, you know, that's definitely where you're also making a huge impact. And I'm so thankful to hear about your diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, because as, as we said, sport is a tool and it's universal, but you have to have access to it just like anything else. And so the geographic disparities and the economic disparities, we do have uh, a long way to go in all sport. Uh, particularly in adaptive sport, I think, um, because, you know, it costs six or seven times more uh, because of the equipment or what, or even just the travel, you know, people have to travel, uh, you know, two hours just to practice on every Sunday or and back and forth. So I, I know that, uh, I, so I'm glad to hear that, that, that is the work that you're taking on with uh, NWBA. Darlene, is there anything else you want to chat? No, I think we covered a lot. I'm sorry. Did I talk too much? <laughs> Well, no, my my pleasure. I, I I was thrilled to thrilled to chat with you. So, thank you very much for being my guest. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.